Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. This is Jude chapter 1. It's the only chapter. We're going to go through verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Pastor Bill, I'm going to invite him up and I'm going to pray for him, but everybody is aware of what's going on in our world right now, and so we also, we have brothers and sisters who this morning, their biggest concern wasn't uh, setting up church chairs or pipe and drape. Their biggest concern was um, a war going on outside. And so there are people who aren't able to gather this morning. There are people who are gathering um, in Ukraine in hiding. And so we just want to lift them up in, in prayer as well. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we're able to gather. I thank you that even on a, a day like this that, you know, kind of feels scattered and all over the place. Um, just things that happen behind the scenes, Lord. God, that we hear the sound of a rain, of the rain on the roof and we're very comfortable. God, and I say that to say thank you, Lord, not, not to so that we feel bad or anything like that, God, but that we would have hearts that remember our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, God. I pray for peace. I pray for comfort. And God, I pray for a revival, not only there, but also here. God, that this would um, move us, compel us to be more of a praying people, to be more of a people that are hungry and thirsty for your word, for your truth. God, that we would be eager to see your spirit move. God, I pray for our pastor this morning, and I ask that you would be with him, spirit. I'd only, uh, only allow him to speak what you would have him speak. Soften our hearts this morning. Eradicate our pride. Don't let us fall into the trap of thinking we've heard this before or that we know this or we know better. God, would you just soften our hearts, humble us, enable us to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. And I do want to say regarding the member meeting, if you are in the membership process or if you're just, hey, we've been attending for a while, we really love and we want to get involved at Coram Deo, you're certainly invited to join us as well. Um, it'll be a good time. So um, I've been thinking a lot about fighting, right? Because that's kind of the idea that we're seeing in the book of Jude. This, we've, we've titled this sermon series, Fighting for Faith. And so I grew up with two older brothers and I would love to say that we were just sweet and we always got along and we never, ever fought, but that would be a lie. Um, my brothers and I used to just get into all kinds of chaos 
Um, there's some funny stories I could tell you about how being the, the youngest of three, and I was a pipsqueak, I was teeny-weeny, I was not very big at all. Um, I used to just get wrecked all the time, right? We used to fight. My brother used to put me in headlocks. I've definitely had my head set on and farted on before. That's a real moment in my past. Uh, there was all kinds of stories, and I thought about, man, what's a funny story? And I could think about when we, like, yelled at each other over Smash Brothers on Nintendo 64 for a long time. But the funniest thing to me as I looked back and remembered my childhood was a moment when I was just little ninth grade Billy, um, just sweet little ninth grade Billy. Couldn't do anything or fight anyone, right? I was, you know, like, I think, like, 95 pounds, just like a total little goober, right? So my brother Drew, he's my oldest brother. He's a missionary in Japan. Just keep that in mind right now. Um, He decides we're out together. We're having a good time. We go to this pool party at our friend Tyler's house, and we're having a great time. Everyone's having fun, and Drew's like, you know, it'd be funny. Let's see how many times I can dunk Billy in the water, and so it was about the sixth or seventh time that everybody there was kind of like, Drew, chill out, man. Like, this is a little too much. And so my friend Ben grabs Drew like this. Now, I don't know that. I'm under the water. So I come up just a full of fury, and I swing as hard as I can and deck Drew in the face. Now, that was a problem, right, because Drew was defenseless. So he's just being held against his will and gets punched Now, Drew is violently angry at this point because his little brother just owned him in front of all of his friends. And so what's going to happen here? He storms out and he gets my most prized possession, which again, it was the early 2000s. It was like 2001. So he grabs my trapper keeper that's filled with all my CDs, my precious CDs. And he knows his brain kicks on right as he storms up. And he's like, if I do what I want to do right now, it will not go well for me. And so he removes every single CD out of there, puts them in the car so that they're safe, but comes up, and unbeknownst to me, I think it's full of my CDs, and he hurls it into the pool. Yeah, I was pretty upset. I started, like, weeping and wailing because I thought everything was over, and he goes, it's empty, but next time, it's going to be full. (laughs) So today, we're going to talk about fighting, right? But we're not talking about silly sibling feuds, right? We're going to hear from actually Jesus's little brother. We're going to hear about why we need to contend for the faith. Fighting for faith, that's what we're talking about as we walk through this really short book together over the next couple weeks. Jude is actually one of, if not the most overlooked books in the New Testament. Um, Actually looking up, just trying to see what other pastors and preachers have written about it, there's not a lot of content out there for the book of Jude outside of a couple verses. And it's because it's an obscure book, right? It has a lot of obscure Jewish references. You're going to see that next week that get us kind of lost in the sauce of what's happening here. We, we got to kind of sort through it and figure out what's, what's really going on. But Jude is actually this incredible little book that packs a huge punch. Again, it's written by Jude, or actually more accurately translated Judas, but you can see why we've rendered it Jude. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. We say half-brother because, again, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, before we say anything else, that alone should get our attention, right? I love my older brothers, but I'm not bending a knee to my older brother, right? I mean, again, this is the guy who used to throw my CDs in the pool. Like, that's not what's going to happen. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't always this way, right? If you guys remember, we went through Mark. Listen to this little nugget from Mark chapter 3, verse 21. 
This is Jesus's family. And when his family heard it, that is Jesus speaking, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So it's not like Jude always following, following Jesus like, man, he's so wise. He knows what he's doing. He's the son of God. I'm just his little like half-brother. No, no, they thought he was nuts, right? They didn't want to follow Jesus at all. But now, all of a sudden, we get a totally different story. So what changed? Well, Jesus got up out of the grave. And because of that, Jude doesn't say, hey, it's Jude brother of Jesus, he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. He saw his older brother take on the penalty and punishment for his sin, march towards the cross of Calvary, dying in his place for his sin. And then he didn't stay there, but he got up out of the grave, came, spoke, and then ascended to the right hand of the father. And now Jude has committed his life to the advancement of that gospel, of that news that Jesus is alive. And Jude sits down to write a letter to a young church. That's really the context of what's happening here. He's excited. He wants to write this letter. And his initial purpose is, hey, we're going to share in this common joy that we all have for our salvation. And he has that plan. And then as he's starting to write this letter to uplift and encourage encourage the saints, he hears about their current predicament that there are false teachers that have infiltrated the church and he is just gut-checked by the spirit of the living God to write a different letter. This is what we read. Look at verse three. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, that's the purpose statement of this letter. It's a call for you and I to fight. To fight for what? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're, we're fighting for the faith, right? For the gospel that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life without sin, that he died in our place for our sins, that he rose again, conquering Satan's sin and death, and that he will return again to make all things new. So what is it specifically that we're fighting and, and, and how do we fight? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning is the what and the how. That's what we're going to jump right into with, First, what do we fight? And it would be easy for you and I to simply read this and say, well, we should fight false teaching. And yes, it's absolutely true. That's easily what's in here. But this is actually a multifaceted battle that we fight. Now, lately, I've been trying to read and and just reflect. And one of the the places that I've been finding a lot of wisdom and a lot of joy in is reading the Puritans. Now, you might be like, okay, Billy, where are we going with this? Hear me out. Um, The Puritans are so, so helpful Dane Ortland, we, we gave you guys his book last year, Gentle and Lowly. It's great. There's still copies if you want one at the resource area. Just snag it. It's free. It's our gift to you. He says this about reading the Puritans and other heroes of the faith from the past. He says, the Puritans and other saints from the past will help us climb inside the Bible and see the riches that God has for us in his word for our day-to-day Christian lives. The vast majority of wisdom available to us today is found among the dead. Though their spirits are now with Christ in heaven, the books and sermons of Augustine, 
Gregory the Great, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Sibes, Goodwin, Owen, Bunyan, Edwards, Whitfield, Ryle, Spurgeon, Bovnik, Lewis, and Lloyd-Jones remain with us. So we draw great strength and insight from the great ones of the past, far more than the famous ones of the present, as we consider what scripture gives us for growing in Christ. Here's the deal. These men's words still resonate. They still pack a punch. They still resound with wisdom that lasts far more than the tweet that I read last week, right? So with that, as I started to dive into where can I go for wisdom? How can we parse out Jude? There's some interesting things in there. I came to the Puritan John Collins who wrote a very lengthy sermon on just verse three of Jude. This is a sermon that is 340 years old. And it feels like outside of the archaic language, it was written to our culture right now. He expounds on what we fight in three ways. And so I wanna look at those. The first thing that we fight is our own deceitfulness, our own deceitfulness. And here's the reality. We can be quick to abandon the truths of the gospel. We just can't be, right? We, we sang that this morning, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Because you and I, we can get caught up in the harsh realities of life. We can become paralyzed by our fears. We can become paralyzed by our anxieties. And Colin says that we have to guard against our own deceitfulness. He says, especially in a rash, sudden forsaking of the ways we have been taught and the profession of faith we have taken up. You see, throughout the scriptures, what we see is the enemy comes in and preys on our gullibility. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, the very first lie we see, the very first lie that leaves the serpent's mouth is, God is not good. But did God really say? Does God really want? See, it's not just the lies whispered in our ears. It's the war that's waged in our own hearts. Friends, we cannot be unaware of our own heart's deceitfulness. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. This is why scripture speaks of giving us a new heart, radically transforming us. We have to be aware of our capacity to be misled. We've seen a growing number of hashtags over the last couple years. Things that say uh, exvangelical deconstruction. Maybe you guys have heard that before. Many people are running into the fiery trials of life and they're becoming lulled by the ever-growing popular movement of deconstruction. And, And so what is that? You might be wondering. Deconstruction is when you take a hard look at the faith of your childhood a hard look of the faith that maybe you came to at some point in life and you start to take it apart, dismantle it to try and understand it. We've seen people from Joshua Harris to YouTubers like Rhett and Link who are all participating in this movement of deconstruction. And listen, this is by no way a a new thing. This is something that's happened for as long as Christianity has existed. People have kind of come to the faith. Jesus gave a parable about this where we scatter the seeds and either the thorns of life, struggles, cares of life might choke us out. And listen, while there are certainly things that have come from this movement that are good, that need to be addressed, right? Like there's rampant abuse that's in the church. 
We don't want to gloss over that and say, oh, that's no big deal. No, we need to reckon with that. We should, as a church, welcome those who are doubting. Welcome those who are frustrated and tired and confused, who don't know what they believe about all this stuff, rather than expect everyone to be perfect and all put together. Because frankly, none of us are. If we were, then we wouldn't need Jesus. But we desperately need Jesus. And so we should welcome those with doubt because God can handle it. Trust me, read the Psalms. They are honest with how they feel. But I do want to challenge us on this because this isn't as new as we would think, right? Hear this from John Collins. He says, if you forsake the ways and truths of Jesus Christ before you can hear what can be said for them, you act unrighteously. What he's saying is too often we make rash decisions outside of the context of community. We don't go to our brothers and sisters. We don't go to our friends and say, hey, I'm struggling. I don't know what I believe about this stuff. I don't know what to do with all of it. We can even be lulled by the pull of our culture to say, man, a lot of people I respect, a lot of people I listen to, they're kind of moving towards this movement. It just feels comfortable and natural to shift that way and pull away from community. And again, it's no surprise that all of this is coming up as most of us have been isolated for the last two years. Before we go away and drift into the sea of deconstruction, would we come before the feet of Jesus and hear him? Would we go to the gospels first? Would we we go to our community? If we forsake the ways and truth of Jesus Christ before we can actually hear what can be said for them. As John Collins says, we act unrighteously. That's the first thing that we battle. It's our deceitfulness. The second thing is this, the lust of our own heart. Now we're going to tackle this a little bit more as we get into the book, but the big issue that we see facing Jude's audience is what theologians call antinomianism. Now before you're like, what? Just follow me for a second. It's the idea that because we now follow Jesus, we have freedom. We can do whatever we want, live however we want, and Jesus will forgive us. If I just pray a prayer, you know, as long as I repent, I can do whatever I want. It's saying, I accept Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And it's a heresy that the scripture attacks over and over and over again, right? To this idea, Paul in Romans 6 says, by no means, absolutely not. Sadly, we see a revival of such thinking in our own day, right? Even among professing Christians, claiming to revel in grace, they sneer at calls to holiness, purity, and forsaking the ways of the world. Right, there are folks that I've talked to who kind of follow this line of thinking. They're like, what's the big deal if I have too much to drink, if I get a little high, I mean, look, dude, it's just porn. At least I'm not actually sleeping around, right? Who cares if I laugh at the occasional coarse joke? It's not like God's watching my viewing history. Am I supposed to believe that he cares about these things? Yes, he does. And to think that he doesn't is to distort his grace that saves and to transform it into a license for sin. May it never be among us. Now, here's the deal. We have to be careful. There's a good and right tension that we hold as believers. We should flee behavior, not because we have to, because if we don't follow all the rules, then God will be mad at us. We don't do these things to earn God's acceptance. 
Rather, because we want to as those who've already been accepted, right? We want to avoid these things because we know there's something better. There's a better source of truth, of joy, of comfort, of peace than the woes that the world offers us. The grace of God in Christ frees us from the power of sin over us. And hear this, freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what I want, but the power to do what I should. Freedom in Jesus is not the liberty to do what I want, but the power to do what I should. It's that we are so overwhelmed by grace that we want nothing else but Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Pure, undiluted grace will make me and you fanatical, not about rules, not about checking all the boxes, but about Jesus and his perfection, his beauty. But again, our hearts can be deceitful. We can be pulled and enticed by this world. And again, we don't want to be legalists. We don't. We don't want to become careless, though. So we fight the war in our hearts against our own deceitfulness, against the lusts that call out to us, the sins that so easily entangle. And then the third thing we fight is against false teachers. So here's the deal. Uh, YouTube... (laughs) Our podcast feeds, they're full of false teachers. We live in a day and an age when we can hear whatever message we want to hear. This is not new though, right? From the moment the gospel was first spoken, the enemy has sought to undo it, right? Jude says in our text (laughs) that there were people who were designated for this condemnation. This is not a surprise to anyone, but you and I have to be careful of what voices we listen to. We have to be more critical on what we hear. This isn't just about the things that we subscribe to on our phones, right? But this is also about what advice do you take and from who, right? So often we like to hear things in a vacuum. We love to hear things that make us feel good. But we have to measure every teaching, every word of advice, every way of life against the word of God. We have to fight for the depth and truth of the gospel. Scripture compares these things to empty cisterns, right? It's like if you've ever had a well that isn't working and you're pumping up a bunch of mud, that's what we're often filling our cups up with. Jesus says, no, we want the pure, undiluted truth, the living water. Listen, I want to take a moment to say how profound I think this call and challenge is for us today, right? In the shadow of the last two years, deconstruction has been a massive issue. This is not a new idea, right? I think even if you haven't called it deconstruction, this idea of dismantling your faith, of pressing into the deep chasm of doubt, it is common for all of us. There's no way over the last two years, right, in the shadow of a new war, pandemics, if there's not some doubt, one voice that I found profoundly helpful, helpful is a pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer. And he looks at this idea of deconstruction and how this is an idea that is not solely or uniquely Christian. In fact, developmental psychologists talk a lot about deconstruction. It's a three-stage process. Stage one is construction, right? In your childhood and your, your family of origin, you're, you're handed the building blocks for a worldview along with a template and you start to construct one that is good and, and, and is healthy, but it tends to be very black and white. 
It's very rigid. In stage one, most of us are pretty self-righteous, right? We, we, we think we know way more than we actually do. We think that life is way more black and white and clear-cut than it actually is. We don't have a lot of capacity to wrestle honestly with the ambiguity of the human condition that we live in a world where there's tension. And that's when often we move to the second phase, that as you become an adult, you realize all the problems, all the issues with that worldview, right? This worldview doesn't have an answer for this thing or this problem or this woe. All the ways that the template that you were handed is skewed or maybe it was biased by your culture, your ethnic background or whatever. And then we start to question, we start to doubt, we start to probe in and search after the truth. What was I handed that's good and beautiful, but what what was I handed that's corrupted by sin? What's true? What's a lie? And then third comes reconstruction, right? That's stage three, that you start to rebuild a worldview based on the best wisdom of previous generations, right? This is why I said what I said about the Puritans, because y'all listen, billions of people have done life before us. We, We don't have to start from a blank slate, We don't have to learn all of the lessons from scratch. We don't have to destroy our lives, wreck our marriages, harm our bodies, just because we want to find out for ourselves. Other people have made those mistakes. If we will humble ourselves, and if we'll read, if we'll study, if we will adopt the posture of an apprentice, of a disciple, then we can be spared so much pain and we can reconstruct a worldview that's based on the best wisdom of past generations and one that has the rock-solid foundation of the word of God. We can reconstruct a worldview that we now own, that has been purged and purified, that we now own with humility and with wisdom and with conviction. We live in a world that's honestly full of stage one and stage two, right? There's very little of that stage three. There's, there's several versions of this, right? There's the conservative version of the stage one that I grew up in, right? The bumper sticker theology, things like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you read Leviticus? Like, I mean, it's weird, right? Listen, I am all for biblical inerrancy. Like, I will, you know, fight tooth and nail for that. But here's the problem with that bumper sticker. It's just missing one little thing, and that's that you and I have to interpret the Bible as a person. It doesn't allow space for doubt, for questions, for context, for emotion. Again, the world is full of false teachers that interpret the Bible in all kinds of ways, right? I could start passing out snakes right now. You might all leave. There's a lot that can happen. There's a lot that we can do that we can interpret things with corrupt human fallenness. That's why we, again, need each other. We need the church. That's why we have to test even our emotions and doubts against the word of God. The Bible welcomes it. Then there's the progressive version of stage one where we see this all around us, where people kind of parrot the the fad lingos of various ideologies, right? People unthinkingly accept ideas that are full of contradiction and bias just because everyone's posting it on their story on Instagram. So it's gotta be right. Listen, and, and just like conservatives are accused for not allowing space for doubt or questions, You're labeled a heretic and you are shamed if you dare to question the deconstruction dogma. I promise you, go on Twitter. It's full of warm, welcoming. No, just stay away. Overall, though, I think we're actually more in a stage two culture where a lot of people just kind of move through this space. And you can only stay zealous for taking apart things for so long before you get kind of stuck in this limbo. 
where you're more against certain things than you're for anything at all specific. It's a place where there is more doubt than faith, more skepticism than confidence, and we see very few people who are at stage three who are putting things back together. These people who are in stage three, these are people who contend, people who have a deep conviction about God and scripture and reality and morality, but they also have a high capacity for just how strange and broken and confusing and ambiguous the human condition is, and they live with a high capacity for mystery. With deep humility and wisdom and compassion, but also with a burning conviction These people exist, and man, some of y'all are even in this room this morning, and I say this with deep love for every single person in this room. If you are in a place of doubt, if you are in a place of confusion, Jesus has an invitation for you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Deconstruction, friends, is not the end goal, and we have to realize that. It's not the be all end all. If you're in that, right, it is a process. It is a phase. We have to get to the end where we put it back together. It's part of growing. It's part of developing as a human being. And if you're in that place, I want to acknowledge that the church in general has not done a great job of holding space for those who are wrestling. I want to acknowledge for those of you who are wrestling and say, I'm sorry if you've ever been shut down for having doubts for asking a question that maybe stirs someone, oh, you can't say that. I'm sorry if you've ever been hurt by the church. Listen, we're not perfect either, but we want to welcome you. We want to fight for your joy, not against you. If you're in that place, friend, you're welcome here. Again, a lot of us um, are coming to this place when we're wrestling through this. And again, a lot of this stuff is coming from John Mark Comer. Just let me say that because this is his great research on this. But deconstruction is the access point between kind of two things, uh, three things here, three external factors from outside of us and three from within. We'll go through these quickly. At the external level, it's what Bonhoeffer calls a cheap grace culture or a low discipleship culture, right? That we, we grew up maybe in a church that's more interested in making converts than making disciples of Jesus. The next thing you have is secular ideologies that we find all throughout the culture. And I know that word secular is fun, but bear with me. Then three, you have the tragic breakdown of trust in spiritual leaders. Um, How many stories can, can a generation take of scandal? I mean, seriously, I understand why people are skeptical, right? I get why you'd be like, well, Billy, I don't know. I, I totally understand why you wouldn't want to trust me because all you have to do is Google pastor failure and you've got page after page after page. Like last year, I was heartbroken when everything came out about Ravi Zacharias. He's supposed to be a man who was contending for the gospel. One of the good ones were like, he seems so kind, he seems so brilliant. But all the while there was insepid, evil, wicked, hidden sin. Why would you ever trust me when all you have to do is Google? So at the external, right, the things that affect deconstruction, you've got low discipleship culture, right, people who are not being raised in the way of Jesus. You've got aggressive secular ideologies. We'll talk a little bit more about how that affects us internally. And you've got a lot of merited distrust in the church. Then, right, so those are the things that are affecting us outside. What's going on inside? Well, first, you have a lack of the fear of God a lack of the fear of God, and with it, a lack of surrender to God's fierce love. 
a Christianity without the cross. And the result is an undisciplined flesh or an undisciplined flesh that's coddled and given free reign rather than conquered by the Spirit's power. Number two, and this is going to be convicting for most of us, you have a mind that is full of digital input rather than saturated in Scripture and prayer. The Barna Group reports the stats. <laughs> the stats a little old, but it, so it's probably more now, unfortunately. The average millennial, and frankly, some of you aren't millennials, but you can, be, you can pull up your screen time app afterwards and we can talk about it. So the average millennial consumes over 3,000 hours of digital content a year. 3,000. And of those 3,000, for strong Christians, they also consume the same amount. Only 150 hours of that content is Christian. That's a 20 to 1 ratio. 20 to 1. That is massive, y'all. That is a key for us to realize. It's been put this way. You become what you contemplate. You become what you contemplate. You become what you give your attention to. If your ratio, right, of, of the world and secular ideologies to Jesus' truth is 1 to 20, it's going to have a corrosive effect on your faith. It just is. Full stop. Then finally, the third factor, and I say this, y'all, with in a tender spirit, the third internal factor is a wounded heart. Listen, I know almost no one who has deconstructed their faith who is not first deeply wounded. They were wounded maybe by a spiritual leader, by a church, by a Christian experience. Maybe they were wounded by their family, by a mother or father who said that they were a believer, but they were wacky and, and painful. Or maybe they've just been wounded by the pain of living in a broken world and tragedy has met them. Maybe it's just the pain of loneliness. It, it's in that place of woundedness that the enemy comes. When you're at your greatest point of vulnerability and he begins to plant lies about your identity, lies about your self-worth. Listen, there's a reason that Jude starts by pointing us back. He says, to those who are called beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. Before he challenges us, he reminds us of who we are. But the enemy comes in and lies to you about what has been declared over you in Jesus. He lies to you about the trustworthiness of people or of the goodness and validity of God or of scripture or the church. And this just begins to afflict your soul from the inside out. And friends, that is a tragedy. And if you're living through that phase, please don't do this alone. Please. We, we, we genuinely, we love you. And we're so sorry that that has happened to you. Let us pray with you. Let us weep with you. Let us live with you. So together, the lack of a fear of God a mind that's just caught up in all the digital noise and a wounded heart just becomes easy prey for the wicked, evil one. Again, if this is you, we don't want to ridicule you. We don't want to label you, but we want to fight alongside of you. And please don't let your heart be taken captive by the enemy. Return to the love of God. There's nothing better than the love of God. And to the rest of us, and we're just trying to figure it out and follow Jesus. This is an appeal to fight, to guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues, the wellspring of life. Don't 
go it alone. This, friends, is what we fight. Our own deceitfulness, the lusts of our heart, false teachers who perpetuate the lies of the enemy. And I know we've just spent a lot of time talking about what we fight. And I just want to finish by looking really quickly at how we should fight. Before we think it's all about being contentious, right? That you need to go, you know, crack your knuckles, pop open your apologetics book and hop on Facebook. Calm down. This isn't about a culture war. I love what Colin says in his sermon. This is like, I almost got up and did a cartwheel in the office when I read this. It's so good. Prayer and tears are the church's weapons. Prayer and tears are the church's weapon. Starting from that premise, he gives us four quick ways that we should fight. And again, I'll go quick. The first, handle God's word rightly. And do you submit yourself to the word of God? Do you walk in the way of Jesus? Again, we should be measuring what we hear by the word of God. We have to balance out how much are we consuming from the world versus how much are we consuming from the word. Scripture compares itself to water and to food and how many of us are malnourished and dehydrated. Come to the well that never runs dry. We start there. The second thing, by prayer. By prayer. Collins says this, thus, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we ask that the gospel may run and be glorified, that these nights of darkness may be dispelled and that the truth may shine to the perfect day. Prayer is perhaps one of our most neglected and yet powerful weapons. All our doing cannot accomplish near as much as our prayers. Here's the beauty of this. The prayers we're told that God delights in, it's not the boastful kind where you stand up and and tote about how great you are. It's the beat your chest in need kind that God delights in. Probably one of the best books I've ever read is a book called A Praying Life on the subject of prayer. And in it, author Paul Miller says this, prayer is asking God to incarnate to get dirty in your life. Yes, the eternal God scrubs floors. For sure we know he washes feet. So take Jesus at his word. Ask him, tell him what you want. Get dirty, write out your prayer requests. Don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Seize the corner of his garment. And don't let go until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. So we pray. Right. We start by handling God's word rightly. We continue to fight by prayer. And third, we fight by practicing faith in community. In spite of more ways than ever to connect, many people, including, yes, Christians, feel extremely isolated and alone. So many of us try to lone wolf it through life. And isolation, it leads us to a a place of doubt and hurt. Friends, we're called to the church. Jude is written to the church. In fact, most of the New Testament, all of the New Testament, let's be real here, is written to churches. 
It was written to a people who are not supposed to go and do life. It's just me and Jesus. You can't survive that way. We are created for one another so that when I doubt, Cody can come to me and say, hey, Billy, remember again the truths of the gospel and vice versa. We fight for each other and with each other. And finally, we fight by being able to suffer for the sake of truth. Now, in our cultural moment, I think often we, we, we think that like, we hear at least, maybe you don't feel this way, that, that our fight is whether or not Starbucks has a Christmassy image on the cup. I'm not talking about that, okay? That's not suffering, um, okay? It's just, it's not. What I'm saying is often when we share our faith, when we seek to contend for the truth, it can result in lost friendships. It can result in hurtful comments. Man, you know, you know what's really painful? To deeply pour your heart out to someone and then they ghost you. They don't respond. They, left, they leave you on red. They don't text back. They don't call back. They just disappear. They ignore you. But it's also painful to be ridiculed. But friends, we should be ready and willing to suffer for the truth. We follow the one who suffered for us and tells us that we're supposed to carry our cross and follow him. We should expect it. Again, it's different than contentious arguing online. This is a heartfelt endurance for the sake of the gospel. We must contend for the truth. We must fight for the faith. Corindale, there's a real battle happening in our souls. Many this morning come in and, and, and you, you haven't been stirred because maybe you don't have any doubts. You've heard this whole sermon and you're like, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. But for many of us, like, let's just be real here. The last two years have kind of made us a little lethargic. It's like when you go to the gym for the first time in a long time and you try to run on an elliptical and you're huffing and puffing and people are looking at you weird. That's where we're at because the muscles of community, the muscles of gathering have not been stretched. We've gotten into this routine of sporadic attendance, of inconsistent rhythms. And the language of so many churches has moved from how do we strive to love our neighbor? How do we strive to seek to serve our communities to how do we survive? Many churches are harboring grave concerns about ministry, about the long-term sustainability of the church in America. But here's what I would say to you, fight. Don't give in. Don't give up. Let's contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because Jesus, friends, is the hope of the ages. He's the only lasting joy. He's the only peace. And we are called together to a new family. So let's endure. Let's thrive as we fight. We know the victory is won because Christ has already conquered, right? He said that we will storm the gates of hell, that he will build his church. So it cannot fail. The battle doesn't always seem explosive and crazy. Often, friends, the battle is in the passing moments, the quick decisions. It's often that the war is greatly waged in our numbness. That's how the enemy likes to fight, by keeping us distracted and defeated. I want to close with one line here from the screw tape letters. Before I read it, if you don't know what the screw tape letters are, it's a work of fiction uh, from C.S. Lewis, who's incredible. Um, if you've never read any of his stuff, he wrote a book where an older, wiser demon writes to a new young demon. 
And it's all about how can we tempt and lull and woo people away from Jesus. And this is what Uncle Screwtape writes. He says, you will say, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. That's Jesus. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without milestones, without signposts. Fight, Corindeo. Fight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. Every hour, every minute, every moment. We live in a pressing day and age when, man, there's a lot to mourn. A lot of us come in and we come in with hurt, with pain, with baggage, with wounded hearts. Nowhere in the gospel does it say, come to me, all you who are put together and neat and organized and have it all figured out. If we did, we wouldn't have need for you. So Jesus, we come broken, weary, tired, confused, and doubting. And we ask, Lord, please be our strength. There's nothing better than you. Help us to believe that truth, to fight for that truth, to contend alongside of one another. God, I pray for those in this room who are doubting. I pray they'd be able to look to their right and left and see brothers and sisters who say, I will fight for you. I will fight with you. God, I pray for those of us us this morning who look at our lives with a sober awareness to say, man, I am putting in so much that is not focused on Jesus. And that we would strive, Lord, to come to the word of God and to fight against the lies of the enemy that wage war in our own hearts. Help us to fight, Lord, to fight for the truth of the gospel, to contend for it, the faith that was once for all delivered to us. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.